A few years ago, one of my teachers asked me um, to name, to speak about one quality or the single quality that I might name that would be, that I saw as most important, most essential for a realization on this path. And I think at that time I, I spoke about uh, the quality of perseverance, of this kind of steadfastness, this sticking to it, this persevering energy over time. And I remember um, I asked a friend of mine, another meditation teacher, colleague, I, I asked her this question. I was curious to see what she might say. And she very quickly, she answered really immediately, didn't think about it for more than a second, and uh, very unequivocally said that faith, in her estimation, faith was the single most important essential quality leading to realization, to liberation, as a basis for our practice. And I was a little bit surprised. For some reason, that, that hadn't come to my mind when I was first asked this question at the time. And all of us who've come here, who are here practicing, who are engaging in this practice, we have some kind of deep, I think, intuitive sense that this path will lead us to a deeper understanding of what it means to be human. And some kind of, I think, really heart-based, not so much an intellectual, but a really this intuitive kind of confidence that this practice leads to greater clarity, to ease, to understanding, to peace, to freedom in our lives. We wouldn't be here practicing if we didn't have some sense of this, that the path leads this to greater freedom for us. And so we know that the practice will be a benefit and we, we've seen how it's directly in our lives, how it benefits us. We've tasted the fruits of practice and in different ways, we've seen how it has benefited others. And so this is this quality of faith or confidence, sadha in Pali is the word. And one way we might speak about this quality of faith, sadha, is is as a combination of a wholesome yearning for freedom, for liberation, combined with an aspiration and a determination to fulfill that yearning. So you could say that faith brings our deepest aspiration together with a kind of deep inner trust that that this is actually possible, that we can actually make this kind of journey, that it is actually possible to realize greater ease, to realize freedom in our lives, and really plumb the depths of what it means to be human, realize our fullest potential. And through our practice, we start to see that we can actually find some stability in our lives, sense of balance in the face of all the changes that come, life's ups and downs, the inevitable changes that come to us. And we see that even though there are times when we may feel somewhat shaken, we may get shaken, we come back to a place of balance. We see how the practice aids us in this and that we can be with the joys and pleasures of life, the happy times, without grasping at them, without demanding that they stay, or without demanding that things always be that way. And we don't become addicted to having only pleasant experience, 
And conversely, we can be with difficult times, with sorrows, with unpleasant experiences, and we don't fall into despair or into a state of struggle. We allow them to arise, to pass away as conditions come and go. And we don't add the sting of of aversion and reactivity born of habitual patterns so much. In a sense, we, we let go of shooting ourselves with that second arrow of reactivity born of habit. And so I think this quality of connecting our deepest possible aspiration with this confidence that we can move forward, this uh, yearning for freedom and this confidence to set forth, that this is really an essential thing to really reflect on our aspiration and, and it's essential, essential as part of deepening our confidence and faith. And so to really reflect on our aspiration, our deepest aspiration, maybe not so much as some kind of fixed goal, perhaps more usefully as a sense of direction in our lives. You know, goals might change over time. You know, we may have something that we see as a goal, but it's limited by what we know in any moment. And as our understanding deepens, as our practice unfolds, what we might once have placed great importance on could seem less compelling as our understanding shifts and deepens. But if we hold our aspiration as a direction that we're steering towards, then there's a dynamic process of the practice that is allowed with that. And we see what leads in the direction of peace and freedom, what leads to happiness, we steer in that direction. We make that our compass bearing, you could say. That's our heading. And on the other hand, we see what leads to unhappiness, to suffering, to harm for us and for others. And we steer away from this. We abandon, relinquish this kind of path. And so we have this sense of steering towards the good with this confidence that this actually is possible for us. And we actually start to see in our lives, in our practice, that that this is actually happening step by step, that our understanding has deepened, that we do come back to balance, we do come back to our course more quickly, that our lives really are moving towards greater freedom. In the Visuddhimagga, there's a sort of there's tech, a lot of nice technical definitions in there, various things. Some of it can be very useful. Sadda, faith, is said to have the characteristics characteristic of confidence or trust, and it's said to clarify. The function of it is said to be that of clarifying. It's the images of a water clearing gem. This, image of a gem that settles out impurities. And part of that function also is said to be this setting out upon, entering into, setting out across, this kind of resolve of beginning, setting out. And in in that text, the image that's used is that of crossing a flood, this image of setting out across a flood. 
And faith clarifies our priorities in life. It helps us to see what's really important. It gives us the strength to set out this function of setting out, beginning a journey. This is a quotation from Martin Luther King. He said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. It's quality of setting out. And the manifestation of faith is said to be clarity or, and resolve. We see what matters. We connect to our aspiration. We see what matters. And there's this resolve to set out with that. And it's said that faith should be regarded as a hand because it takes hold of profitable things. That's a, a lovely image of seeing faith as a hand that takes hold of that which is useful, profitable, helpful. It takes out, it seeks and takes out hold of those things that lead to greater understanding, to ease, to clarity, to freedom. And so we can see it as linked to energy, a kind of energy that seeks out those good things that lead to freedom, an energy that clarifies what's important for us an energy that enables us to set forth on this journey. At some point, either in a book or a talk, I remember Sharon Salzberg saying that likening faith as uh, something that we can place our hearts upon, we can find a refuge, a, a place of safety to put our hearts on, that that's what faith is. It's like a kind of refuge. And there's different ways that we can find faith in our lives, in our practice. We can find faith and confidence in the teachings, maybe in our teachers. And most importantly, we find faith in ourselves and in our ability to actually do the practice, to walk this path, to put these teachings into practice for ourselves. And this is the most important, most essential kind of confidence of faith can have confidence in, in someone else or in something we've read or heard, but it only goes so far. And until we actually verify for ourselves that the practice works, that we're actually capable of doing it. And in a really practical and, and very personal way, until we establish that for ourselves, then our faith can be quite tender and might falter in the face of conditions changing. And so we come to a sort of verified confidence. And this takes a willingness to really be present, present with the truth of things in the moment. We need to really actually see what's happening and see how defilements manifest in our heart and mind, how these unwholesome roots do lead us astray in our minds and hearts in the world how they lead to suffering, and how it's possible to abandon them, to relinquish them, and to steer towards freedom and peace. So we need this willingness to really get to know the inner terrain of our heart and mind. I mean, this is what we explore so intimately in our practice. We get to know this terrain very intimately. And we see the ways that we get caught. We see where we're vulnerable. And we learn ways to find, to call upon inner strength and to support ourselves 
And we also see the ways that we are really strong, where we have strength. And we try to call this forth and to really live from this place. And touching this inner strength that we all have to some degree, and really to a great degree to do this practice. It's not an easy path. This brings our brings faith and confidence that we can continue, that we can trust the Dhamma and the way that it will unfold in our life. Knowing that we may get off track, we may get lost at times, but we will come back on course and come back to balance. Sometimes reflecting on on times of difficulty, challenging times that we've gone through in our lives, in our practice, and we see, well, we actually did make it through these times that we found this place of inner strength, this core of deep integrity, all kinds of ways, large and small, that we've opened to manage to overcome the difficult in our lives and practice. Times we've come back to balance and we've started over again. I was thinking about this, I remembered a time This was during my very first long retreat, a long time ago now. And I remember one of the teachers suggesting that we we make a determination to sit without moving for one, just one hour long sitting. Doesn't seem like very much perhaps, but I remember making this resolve, making this strong determination at that time. And and I, um, it was very powerful for me because I remember going through this intense dukkha that I I thought I wouldn't actually survive the hour, (laughs) but my resolve was so strong to not move. I I didn't move. And, you know, it was like, oh, please ring the bell in my mind, this, this desperation in a certain way. But there was this strength of, of the resolve very powerfully and, and surviving through that coming out, um, really changed things a lot. I really felt like, okay, I can, I can take a lot here. <laughs> you know, I can, if I can go through that, I can go through a lot of things. It gave me a real sense of strength. And I remember the first time I, I went for a long period of practice in Burma. And at that time, I, I was really making a lot of effort, really practicing very diligently. And, uh, I was pushed, pushed to the edge of what I thought I could bear in a lot of ways, in terms of the effort I was making, in terms of times of feeling utterly exhausted, I didn't have any more to, to offer, in terms of painful sensations in the body and in the heart. It was beyond anything I'd, I'd experienced to date in my practice. But making it through this time and, and the strength and, and faith that came from that. And we've all got stories of times that we've made it through, whatever it might be. Somehow found some reserve of strength, some sense of resolve, determination. And it's good to reflect on this at times, to highlight and really touch our strength and touch the faith and confidence that comes from this. I know for myself, maybe this is true for some of you, I find that it's usually really easy for me to see 
the ways that I don't come up to to what I think I should do, see my weaknesses or ways that I feel like I'm lacking, that I'm not strong, times when I feel like I, I haven't been able to rise to the occasion. And it's easy to see this for a lot of us. I think something in our culture maybe promotes this tendency and, and it can lead us to, to feeling defeated at times or, or to almost times of self-pity and so we really need, I think, to balance this tendency if it's there for us and reflect on our strength, reflect on the confidence that we do possess. There's a shift that happens in our practice, I think. It's quite profound when, when all of the teachings that we've heard, we hear a lot of teachings over time as we come to retreats and follow this path and hear different teachers, read books. And there's a shift when this, when our understanding begins to really move from a theoretical place to something that's really personal and practical in our lives. And we see how these teachings actually fu- function very directly. And this causes faith and confidence to grow. You know, we may hear the same teachings over and over as the years go by and then and then we see that it actually what we're hearing starts to line up with our experience very directly. You know, maybe we hear a lot about the five aggregates, for example, the aggregates subject to clinging, subject to clinging, or the seven factors of awakening. You know, and we hear about this, we think, well, maybe we're supposed to memorize these various lists of of things, uh, something we're supposed to know about. But then at some point, we start to see directly how how identification with the aggregates happens, how we create a sense of self in relationship to these things. We see it functioning directly or how the, these powerful, beautiful, wholesome energies of the factors of awakening, we see them arise and functioning in our practice, how they incline us towards awakening. And we see that we actually do have some understanding that these ideas and teachings, they're not just ideas, but that they have direct practical application for us. And that with patient, persistent effort, understanding does come. And so our faith grows from seeing this. We may take faith and inspiration from our teachers, teachers that we practice with directly or, or others that we read about who inspire us, inspirational figures like the Dalai Lama or Deepama. I've taken great inspiration from Deepama, brought a lot of faith reflecting on, on her life and practice. And I, I never had the chance to meet her, but I, I found great inspiration and confidence coming, reading about someone like that. These people we may not have met, but they inspire us. Their lives are inspirational to us. And their kindness, devotion, their wisdom seems to shine through. It's people who've walked the path and show us the way. And they demonstrate through their very being that, that the path can be walked to completion. And, and that as the Buddha said, if, the Buddha said if, it were, if it were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And these people point to this, that it is possible, that we can do it. We see that our experience parallels theirs in ways and that 
we're walking the same path. It's the same path and practice. And I think finding sources of inspiration really is finding this is very useful for us. You know, we find our own inner strength and, and conviction when we see how the practice is unfolding in our lives. We see that we can do this. But I think it's also, for me, it's been really helpful to reflect on those who've gone before, who have walked this path to completion. I'll be leaving uh, the Forest Refuge this week. I haven't been here for the month. It's been a lovely time for me here, and I, I love to, to be here in different ways as a yogi, and times like this when I'm helping teaching, part of the teaching team. And I'll be going uh, shortly after I leave here, within a, less than a week, I'll, I'll leave for Burma. It's an, become a sort of annual pilgrimage uh, for me traveling to Burma where I help with a retreat there. And I work with a couple of small uh, humanitarian aid projects as well that I help to raise money for and and, uh, work with there. And whenever I think of of my coming up, my trip to Burma, images that come to me about that, I find that that, uh, a lot of the time there are images of of the nuns that I know and nuns that I've seen there. They seem to be such a part of the landscape. They stand out because they wear pink, peachy and pink colored robes. They're very uh, easy to spot. Somehow it works in Burma. I don't think it would go over so well here. (laughs) But that color works really well in that country and climate. And they're such an inspiration to me, people who I've gotten to know know over the years and they, uh, they seem to live with such grace and dignity and devotion. And there's this quiet, simple faith that just shines forth from them. It's said in the Theravada tradition, it's said that this lineage of the bhikkhunis, the fully ordained nuns, that that's been broken. And, and for a long time, they haven't been able to receive full, ordin- full ordination like the monks. They can take eight or 10 precepts. There is some change happening. We're starting to see some real change in this area, and it's, it's great to see that. And there has been a real um, growing movement to reinstate the full ordination. Last year, I happened to uh, be over at the retreat center when, uh, here at IMS when uh, a Sri Lankan nun, Bhikkhuni Kusama, was visiting. And she's a fully ordained Buddhist nun from Sri Lanka. She's born in Sri Lanka, and she's been pioneering the reestablishment of the bhikkhuni order there. Um, she was the first woman in over a thousand years to uh, become a fully ordained nun in Sri Lanka. And it was very um, inspiring for me to meet her. She, uh, when she took up this, uh, when she decided to, well, she had. She was living as a laywoman. She has two, two PhDs, I believe. She did one on the bhikkhuni, uh, on the um, vinya for the nuns. And another uh, thesis that she wrote was uh, showing how the, the lineage had actually moved across Asia into Korea and that it actually wasn't broken, trying to show that, it, that the 
nun's lineage was not actually broken the way that it's believed to be. And she was living in Korea, I think, uh, completing some of her research when she was asked to, um, if she would come and, and ordain and, and take on this, this uh, reestablishing this nun's order. And, and she didn't want to do it. She had to be persuaded at first. And, and she was afraid. She felt that her uh, safety might be in jeopardy because it was going against such a strong, strongly held tradition there. And, and she decided, well, she was older then. She said, well, it's okay, I'm older. If I have to give up my life to do this, I'll, I'll do it. This incredible strength. And she was such a, a sweet, um, powerful presence. When she came to visit, she'd, she went in to bow to the, in the hall to bow to the Buddha there. And uh, she spoke about this had been something she'd always, she'd heard, known about IMS for a long time. She'd always wanted to come and pay respects there, visit the meditation hall. There are some, uh, one of the projects that I work with is uh, run through a small monastery outside of Rangoon. And I have two friends who are both they're Westerners, but they live as nuns there. And they've been uh, helping organize this project, starting a small clinic there and uh, helping out people starting at the time when the, the large cyclone Nargis hit a few years, three years ago now, two and a half years ago. And uh, I took, went around with them to visit some of the small nunneries that, that uh, money we had raised was helping to support rebuilding after the storm and and helping to support some of these very small nunneries in that area, people living very, very simply in ways that it's hard for us to imagine living in this country. And we visited two sisters who had, had created a small vihara for themselves, and their intention was they had, they had done all of their study and, and uh, times of service in different ways, and they were planning to have a long period of retreat time. They'd set up this place for that purpose. And then the cyclone hit and, and uh, their preceptor, I think, came and with a whole bunch of, of young orphan girls, very young ones, and, and said, well, you have asked them to, you have to take on these, these little girls and, and look after them. They have no place to go. And so they, they took them on. What were they going to do? And, and visiting them, there were all these little nunlets around in their pink robes. One of them had her cat, this cat that she, um, I have a great picture of her holding this unbelievably mellow cat, um, just totally relaxed in this little nun's arms. And uh, just this, so inspiring for me to meet these people. My friends there, Westerners, who have this incredible dedication, commitment to their practice, to their life, in robes. One of them has passed her Dhammacharya studies and gotten the Dhammacharya uh, degree, which is unbelievably difficult, memorizing huge amounts of things, learning Burmese first and then Pali. And uh, most people don't, don't pass it on even the first, often not even the second attempt. It's a very difficult um, degree to get there. In the suttas, uh, the collection of suttas in the Pali Canon, there's a, 
a small section called the Terigatta. It's part of the Kudaka Nikaya, which is a, a collection of little texts, Kudaka Nikaya. And the, the word te, Terigatta, Teri, comes from the same root as Terra in Theravada. Theravada meaning way of the elders. Terra means elder. Teri is the feminine. And Gatta means a verse or a song or a poem. So the Terigatta, those are verses or poems of these female elders. And there are 73 poems in this collection. And uh, in, this, in these poems, these nuns recount their struggles and realizations on the path to enlightenment. And uh, I love the poems in there. They were preserved orally for quite a while before written down like the rest of the Pali Canon. And there's not a lot of information about these early nuns, these early women disciples of the Buddha there's a little bit in some of the suttas and in the, in the vinya and, and in some of the commentaries. But these poems from the Terigatta, they really give us a glimpse into the lives of these, these people. And they're, they're so simple and honest. They have this quality that I find of being really straight from the heart. And they make, make this lineage very real and human. We, we see what their lives were like to some extent. So I'm going to read some, uh, tell a couple of stories, a few stories, and read some of the poems from the Terigatta tonight. I used a translation by Susan Murcott called The First Buddhist Women. There's a number of translations. I, I think hers are quite good. And there were some stories that I got from this book, and, and they can seem kind of like teaching fables, they're somewhat formulaic and have this uh, kind of mythical quality. But they really do, I think, connect us to this lineage over nearly 2,600 years now. And we see through some of the things they say that we're practicing the same teachings. And for me, they're, they've been an inspiring reminder of, of my own potential. I see them as a reminder of our potential as we follow in their footsteps. So the first story and the first poem are those of uh, the Buddha's foster mother, Mahapajapati Gotami. And she was the founder of the Bhikkhuni order, of the Bhikkhuni Sangha. And so this story starts when the Buddha was born. And his, the Buddha's mother, Maya, and her sister was Pajapati, and they were uh, part of the Kolian clan in the Himalayan foothills in northeast India, probably southern Nepal now. And uh, when they were grown, they were both, both of them were married to a nearby, uh, the king of a nearby clan, uh, the Sakyas, the king of the Sakyans, whose name was Sudadana, and they moved to his capital city, Kapilavatu. And uh, after a time, uh, Maya became pregnant, and it was, the, it was customary then for women to go to their parents' home to give birth. And so when her time came, she set off with a retinue, stopping en route at a place called the Lumbini Garden, uh, where there were beautiful blooming trees, and she stopped to admire the trees. And uh, it's said that she was reaching up to pluck a branch from a flowering rose apple tree and went into labor and uh, gave birth there under the tree in uh, Lumbini. And then shortly, a week after uh, her baby was born, a baby boy, she died suddenly. And so, and this was the, the baby Siddhartha and his, uh, 
his aunt, Pajapati, became his foster mother and she raised him and later had two of her own children. And during, uh, as after he was grown and left the palace, uh, during the entire six years of his spiritual quest and struggle, uh, he never returned home. But at some point after his enlightenment, during after the first rains following his enlightenment, the Buddha returned home at his father's request. And by this time, his, his aunt, his foster mother, was uh, probably in her late 50s or early 60s, very highly respected as the, as the wife of the king, as the queen, and, and due to her age, status. And it said that she came, uh, when he came and gave a discourse that she, she attained stream entry level of awakening, uh, listening to his first the discourse that he gave at that time. And then the, a few years later, after the fifth rains, after his awakening, the Buddha again went there to uh, visit his, his, uh, the city of his birth. And at this time, uh, Pajapati Maha, Pajapati Maha meaning great, she decided to ask permission for women to go forth into homelessness to become nuns, which would have been a pretty radical idea in that time and culture. And the, it said that, and the Buddha, it said, denied this initial request. He, he said no. And he took off, uh, left for the town of Vesali from that, at that time. And, and so Pajapati cut off her hair and put on robes and uh, together with a large group of women, she followed him to Vesali and arrived there outside the Kutagara Hall where he was staying. Said she had swollen feet covered in dust from the road and she stood outside weeping on the porch. And the kindly Ananda approached and said, Gautami, why are you standing out on the porch crying? And she said, because Ananda, the blessed one, does not allow women to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life under the teaching and discipline of the Tathagata, so Ananda went to the Buddha and sat down, bowed and sat down and said, Pajapati is standing outside under the entrance porch with swollen feet, covered in dust and crying because you do not permit women to renounce their homes and to enter into the homeless life. It would be good, Lord, if women were allowed to do this. And the Buddha said, enough, Ananda, don't set your heart on, on women being allowed to do this. And again, a second and a third time, so Ananda thought, the Blessed One does not give his permission. Let me try asking on other grounds. And he said, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arahantship? There's four stages of enlightenment leading to full liberation. He said, yes, Ananda, they are able. And he said, Ananda said, if women are able to realize perfection, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, your nurse, your foster mother. When your mother died, she suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. And at this, the Buddha did give his consent. I think he realized no wasn't going to work. And then he told Pajapati that uh, the women who had come along with her should be ordained if they so wished. And, and so this was the beginning of the bhikkhuni, the nun's order. And it said that Pajapati uh, realized full awakening and uh, lived to be 120. People lived a long time at that, back then, I guess. So I'll read her poem from the Terigata. 
Um, it refers to, uh, she speaks in praise of the Buddha and of, talks about her wanderings in lifetimes in samsara and her own realization. This is Pajapati's poem. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures, who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds, and I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother, knowing nothing of the truth I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. I'll have to pick and choose a bit from some of these. This is kind of a famous story. I think I have to leave it in. This was about a a nun named Patachara, who uh, was quite a powerful figure in the nuns community, became a highly respected teacher eventually with many of her own disciples. And uh, she was born into a a well-to-do family in Savati, the town of Savati. And uh, as was the custom, she was married, arranged marriage to a man, young man of similar rank. Um, but she had other days. The, the marriage was arranged, but um, she had other ideas and ran off with a servant who was her lover. And uh, they got married. And uh, when she became pregnant, eventually she wanted to go to her parents' home to give birth. And uh, her husband was, uh, he wasn't into, into it for obvious reasons. Probably thought he wouldn't be well received. So she took off on her own. She was quite strong-willed by all accounts. And, uh, and he followed her and caught up with her halfway to Savati and, and uh, said that labor came on there along the, the way and she was able to give birth safely and so returned home. And, and this happened a second time a few years later with a second pregnancy. Again, she set off and her husband followed again. And this time, uh, again, she, for some reason, she tended to go into labor on the road. And uh, this time a great storm came up. And uh, so her husband was going to build a shelter because they'd have to spend some time there. And she was going into labor and, and he went off into the, the woods and was cutting grass and stakes for, to build a shelter. And, and he was bitten by a poisonous snake and he, he died there. And uh, Patachar didn't know what was going on. She uh, was in her labor, and uh, so she gave birth and spent the night alone there, sheltering her children from the storm with her own body, and then found his, bo- his her husband's body in the morning where he had died and um, didn't know what to do, decided that she should continue on to her parents' home. And she came to the banks of uh, a river there that she had to cross, and there was a ford crossing there, but it was swollen by the, the, the heavy rain waters. Um, it was too deep uh, for her to carry both children across at the same time. So she went across with the newborn baby and, 
and made a, a bed of leaves on the far side and set the baby down. And then she started back to get the other child and she didn't want to leave the, new, the baby there, had no choice, and she kept looking back. And at one point she looked and, and an eagle is swooping down and she starts to wave and, and shout to scare this bird, this giant bird of prey, swooping down and, uh, and uh, she sees and he carries the child off. And the eagle, she's screaming, the eagle didn't pay any attention, but the other child thought she was waving to him to come. And, and he went to the edge of the river and fell in and, and is swept away and drowned. So she lose, loses both of her kids in this horrible uh, tragedy here. And so she doesn't know what to do. She goes on to her family home. She's coming to the outskirts of the town of Savati and, and meets a man and asks him, if he knows anything about her parents. And he says, don't ask me about them, ask about anything else, but not that. So, okay, this isn't boding well. And she says, there's nothing else I care about. And he said, you saw how it was been raining these nights. The family's house collapsed in the storm and, and it fell on them. And you can see the smoke over there from the funeral pyre where, where there's one pyre and the, your father, the banker, his wife and son there. Their bodies being cremated there. So this, is, this was too much, bad enough already. She lost her mind with the grief of this, just one tragedy after another. Begins wandering around in circles and weeping and wailing. Her clothing became ragged, eventually fell off. She's wandering around naked. The townspeople driving her away as a mad woman. And uh, eventually she wandered where the Buddha was staying in the Jetavana teaching a group of his disciples. And uh, he told them to allow her to come close. And as she came near, when she drew near, he said, sister, recover your presence of mind. And this seemed to shock her into, a, into sanity. And then next someone, a kindly person, gave her a robe to wear. And she told the Buddha her story. And he listened patiently. And he said, Patachara, it is not only now that you have met with disaster and trouble, in your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in all the four oceans. And he continued to speak, and her grief began to ease. And by the end of the discourse, she had realized the first stage of enlightenment, it said. And she requested to join the nuns' community and, and became known as foremost in study and understanding of the nuns' vinaya, the rules of conduct for the ordained sangha. So I'd like to read her poem. It's, it recounts her struggles in her practice, and it really describes her awakening in a beautiful way. I think uh, it's lovely to hear the, the precise moment of her, her awakening. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for the wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. I've done everything right, followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed.
This poem, there's this interesting kind of sequence in this poem that, that we, one often actually sees in meditation practice where there's often a period of very intense concentration of effort, very strong, and then the relaxation from that and then some kind of a catalyst, in this case, her description of, of the moment of the lamp going out as a kind of catalyst that sparks a breakthrough. And her life and story, such a clear parallel for those of you who know the story of Deepama, this great tragedy in her life, losing her, so many members of her family and following into a state of, of uh, almost paralyzed grief and then coming out of that into this period of intensive practice. Hmm. Try to get a couple more in. It's another famous story of uh, a nun named Kisagotami. Many of you have probably heard the story. It's the story of the mustard seed. She was, when she was uh, married and uh, finally had a, a young son and, and uh, received a, a good place in her husband's family, which hadn't been the case before that. And, and she was very attached to her little son because he'd been the, a lot of the cause for her happiness and, and feeling of connection, acceptance into her, her in-law's family. But he became ill as a toddler, her young son, another tragic story. And it was too much for her to accept that he had died. He, he became sick and, and he died. And, and she thought he was just sick. She told herself he would recover if she found just the right medicine. And so she went through the village uh, there, also in Savati, uh, from house to house asking for medicine. And even everyone said, you know, we can't help you. The, the poor child has, has died. She wouldn't hear this. And finally, someone sent her to see the Buddha. And she went and asked him, could he find some medicine and help her, help cure her child and he said yes I know a medicine you must get it yourself and he he told her to bring him a white mustard seed from any house that where no one had died and so she goes off thinking oh if I can get this then this this sage this enlightened sage will be able to provide a cure so she went again house to house and white mustard seed is very common common spice and everyone had them but when she asked, there was no household where, where no one had died. She was told the dead, she was told, are more numerous than the living. And so then the truth hit home, you know, that this was, uh, that death was common to all beings. She came to her senses and, and carried her little boy's body to the cemetery and, and buried it there and went back to see the Buddha. And the Buddha asked if she had the mustard seed, and she said, done, Venerable Sir, is the business of the mustard seed. And she asked if she could join the nuns community, and was famous for her asceticism, eventually realizing full awakening. And her poem is, uh, there are a lot of dialogue poems in this collection, dialogues between uh, nuns or between a nun and, and Mara sometime. So it's quite a longer one, but I'll, I'll read the part which is the voice of Kisagotami in this poem. She said, I have practiced the great eightfold way straight to the undying. I have come to the great peace. I have looked into the mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out. I have put the burden down 
and what had to be done has been done. Sister Kisa Gotami, with a free mind, has said this. There's a few poems, quite a few actually, in this uh, collection of the Terigata of that are attributed to various women who were living as wandering ascetics, which would have been quite rare, not too many, excuse me, women living that way. One of them uh, named Mitakali was apparently living as a wanderer, wandering around, uh, visiting various teachers, and she met the Buddha Buddha at the uh, time when he was giving the discourse uh, called on the Satipatthana Sutta and uh, was inspired hearing this uh, great teaching on the meditation practice, the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, This inspired her to join the nuns community. And uh, as is the case with all these stories, uh, she realized full awakening. And uh, her poem has, again, a lovely description of the moment of realization. I want to read it uh, for that reason. And uh, like Patachara, her awakening came uh, through a result. It was the result of deep insight into impermanence. This is uh, Mitakali's poem. Although Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way and my passions used me and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. I'll read one final poem from the Terigata. This is a nun named Sukha, different than Sukha that means contentment or happiness, different spelling, it means bright or lustrous or shining. And she uh, was a lay disciple of the Buddha's when she was quite young and then eventually uh, was ordained by a nun. Her teacher, her preceptor was a nun named Dhammadina who was uh, famous for being a very eloquent speaker and teacher. And uh, Sukha eventually also became very famous as a speaker, very inspiring speaker, apparently. And uh, her practice unfolded very quickly. She realized Nibbana very quickly in a short time and uh, eventually was considered to be her, the equal of her teacher, Dhammadina, had her own following of disciples. And this poem uh, came one day after she returned from alms round uh, before eating, uh, before they took the meal, she, the nuns gathered and she began to speak. And 
apparently it was so beautiful that everyone was enchanted and, and a tree that was growing nearby was so inspired that it uprooted itself and went striding through the town of Rajagaha <laughs> reciting this poem. Maybe it was a tree, tree deity, it's hard to know. I like to picture a, a tree actually cruising around. Um, so this is actually um, the tree's poem <laughs> about Sukha <laughs> or the tree deity, hard to say. <clears throat> so this picture, this tree cruising through the streets of Rajagir, Rajagaha, Rajagir, modern day. What has happened to these people in Rajagaha? They are like drunks. They don't listen to Sukha preaching, the Buddha's teachings. But the wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. Sukha, you are light because of your bright mind. Concentrated, free of desire, you have conquered Mara and his forces. Bear this body, it is your last. I recently uh, read the biography of a, a Thai nun named Mechi Keu. Not sure I'm pronouncing her name quite right. Uh, some of you may have heard of her. She was uh, a nun who lived uh, from 1901 to 1991, died at the age of 90 in Thailand. And she was a student of uh, Ajahn Man and of Ajahn Mahabua, two very, very famous Thai forest nuns. Ajahn Man was the teacher of Ajahn Cha uh, and a number of other, um, and Ajahn Mahabua, very famous uh, monk. And uh, she, um, her story is really inspiring, really a great read if you uh, are interested in a, a book about a modern day enlightened nun. Um, yeah, she went through a lot of intense struggles, very similar to the stories of some of the nuns that I spoke about tonight. Um, and as far as I know, she didn't write a poem but I thought I'd read a couple of short quotations from her book that um, are as, they're, they're just as good as an Enlightenment poem. So this is a, a couple of paragraphs from Mei Chi Ku, regarded as being fully enlightened. There's quite a beautiful um, memorial tribute, memorial to her in Thailand. <clears throat> this is from her. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, taste, touches, emotions. Anger, greed, delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant where they have any power over my heart. They arise and cease. They are forever changing. But the presence that knows them never changes for an instant. It is forever unborn and undying. This is the end of all suffering. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is also still, 
When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and, in, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. I'm running just slightly long tonight, but I'd like to leave you all with one very short chant. It's the way we always ended the day at one of the monasteries I lived in for a time. And I want to dedicate um, this chant and tonight's talk to um, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the leader of uh, the democratic movement in Burma, who was recently released from house arrest after um, being in house arrest for almost uh, most of the last 20 years. And uh, she's a <clears throat> very inspiring person to me. She's um, incredibly dedicated. Student of Saida Upandita also, by the way. So she's, uh, she's a practitioner like the rest of us. And uh, an incredible inspiration to uh, the people in Burma. So I'm dedicating uh, this talk and this short chant to her and to all those who struggle for uh, freedom in the world. <clears throat> and I'll do this uh, a line of Pali, a line of English. It's the way I, I used to chant it in the monastery. It's called, May There Be All Blessings. I'm sure some of you have heard it. Bhavatu sabamangalang. May there be all blessings. Rakantu sabadevata. May the devas protect you. Sabbuddha nubhavena. Sabbadamma nubhavena. Sabbasangha nubhavena. Sadasoti. By the power of all the Buddhas, all the Dhamma, and all of the Sangha, may there always be happiness for you. So we can chant, chant the uh, verses of sharing, verses of blessing to end the evening. <clears throat> I'll do a short preamble to uh, set the key, <laughs> the way I learned this chant. Now let us chant. 